Okay, today is week two of our Bible Says series. How many of you blessed by last week? What does the Bible say about the Bible? Come on, that was last week's message. Thank you for the, um, thank you for the feedback. I love asking you for compliments. Appreciate that. Honestly, though, this whole series, uh, it's birthed out of a passion that we have to preach the Bible and to let the Bible lead us as a church. And we're gonna deal with some issues. Even today, we're gonna deal with some theological framing on things that the Bible teaches. And, and the whole goal of this series is to help us let the Bible lead our belief and our practices. We said last week that a, the, the first doctrinal statement that we have listed in our beliefs is we believe the Bible is the authoritative rule for faith and practice. That's what we believe and how we live. And so last Sunday, uh, I, I made the comment, I said, we have to put the Bible as the first belief, but it's not the primary belief. The primary belief is Jesus Christ, and we're going to talk about that today. But in order to fully understand who Jesus is and why he came and what his purpose was and what he did for us, we need to agree that we believe in the Bible. Amen, everybody. And so this whole series is designed, and we started last week the way we did to say, hey, we believe the Bible. We're a Christian church, and we believe the Bible is true, and it's authoritative, and it's uh, God's gift to us and his revelation to us about himself for how we believe and how we live. So as Christians, we believe the Bible. Amen me at any time here. We study the Bible. We remember the Bible. We live by the words of the Bible. Can I hear an amen, everybody? So since we trust the Bible, since we've established in this series that we believe the Bible, I wanna spend our time today looking at the question, what does the Bible say about Jesus? What does the Bible say about Jesus? Now, last week I said, we believe the Bible, but we follow Jesus. That is, we don't worship the Bible. It's not God. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible, right, everybody? We believe in God as a triune being of Father, Son, and Spirit, and we read the Bible, we study the Bible, we believe in the Bible, but we follow King Jesus. If you've never considered this before, I want you to understand Jesus is the centerpiece of this faith. Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of this faith. We don't worship pastors, we don't worship church buildings, we don't worship denominations, we worship Jesus. We submit our lives to Jesus, we serve Jesus, we believe in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, we believe Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father praying for us and empowering us. If there's no Jesus Christ, we are still lost in our sin and doomed to hell and separation from God forever. We don't just worship some generic figurative Godhead with gray hair either. We worship God the Father because of God the Son in the power of God the Spirit. Now, specifically, it's because the life and ministry and death and resurrection of God the Son, his name is Jesus, that we even have relationship with God to begin with. So we follow Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. So let me start with a really probing question here. How are you doing with following Jesus as the Lord of your whole life? I didn't ask how you're doing in believing in Jesus. I didn't ask what you think about heaven. How are you doing in following and submitting to the lordship and leadership of Jesus in every area of your life? I'm gonna talk more about this later, but I just wanna, I wanna point this out now. Jesus Christ wants to be the Lord and master and the king of every part of your life your public life, your private life, your sex life, your married life, your single life, your financial life, your calendar life, your parenting. How are you doing following Jesus as a dad, as a mom, as a husband, as a single parent? How are you doing as a kid under parents? Hey, kids, teenagers, listen to me. How are you doing 
submitting to Jesus as Lord as you treat your parents a certain way. You're welcome, parents. Is Jesus the Lord of your whole life? We're going to talk about that today. Now, I'm just going to tell you, everybody, um, please take notes on this sermon. I'm going to give you a whole lot of stuff. I'm your pastor. I love you. I don't need these notes. I already wrote them. But you need these notes, and I'm not emailing them to you. I want you to get a phone out, get a notepad out, and write some notes down today. I love when I say this, and y'all just look at me like this. I'm going to geek out a lot today. Dr. Mike is showing up for the first half of the sermon for sure. I'm going to use all my theological training. And here's the challenge. I'm really kind of anxious about this sermon. I have been for a couple days because I want to try to bring millennia of salvation, history, and theology into a 35 to 58-minute sermon. <laughs> Do you mind? <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to bring... Literally, I told Pastor Randy this morning, it's like, I, I said, I feel like people should write books on this. He goes, they have for centuries. <laughs> and I'm going to preach to you a message about Jesus in 35 to 45 minutes. It's a lot. So keep up and take notes. I'm going to say a lot. And Dr. Mike is in the house, everybody. So there will be a quiz at the end of this sermon. But I want you to understand Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of this faith. We get so generic about God. We talk about God, 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 and we never talk about Jesus. And then we treat Jesus like a diminutive version of God. And a part of it is the English language Bibles that we have. The Bible calls him the son of God. So when you think of a son of someone, you think of a diminished version of a person, right? So like my kids or my little baby, my little mini-me's, right? No, no, no. He's God the son. I want you to have clear understanding about something. There, we worship a God in three persons. He is God the father, God the son, God the spirit. It's not God had a baby, and then a weird gas bubble over here called the Spirit. <laughs> we serve God the Father, we're saved by God the Son, we live by the power of God the Spirit. He is fully God forever, we follow him, we worship him, we serve him, listen, we grow in relationship with him, that's why we pray to him, we talk to Jesus, we read the word of God about Jesus and his Spirit so we can hear from God. We worship Jesus with songs, all hail King Jesus. We go to church because we're part of the bride of Christ. We, we serve, we worship through serving and giving and being together. So today, we'll get pretty theological. I'm gonna say a lot, I'm gonna go really fast and it's gonna feel like a lot. Drink with a fire hose here and I will go over my time limit. But I want you to take good notes. Listen, we're gonna start with this. Jesus Christ is Lord of all and one of us. This is part of the vast nature of who Jesus is that I am afraid we miss. We think of Jesus as human more than divine. He, listen, I just want you to understand this. We're gonna get theological here. This is how we talk about Jesus. It's very important. You have to understand this. Jesus Christ is Lord of everything. There's nothing in all of creation that he doesn't have mastery over and lordship over and power over. And he's also one of us. Theologians call it the dual nature of Christ, the duality of Christ. He is God and he's man. He's not a man who became God. Let me be very clear. No man will ever become God, but he's a God who became man and never shed his godness. He never took divinity off. Jesus never had a Saturday in the flesh with the boys and left God in the, in the house and went to the lake for a couple hours. You know what I'm saying? Like Jesus 
fully God and fully human. This view of God is so huge, this view of Jesus, and he's the only one ever in the history of creation. He's the only one to ever be fully human and fully God. It's unique to Jesus only, only, only. No one else ever gets to do this. It's not true of God the Father. God the Father is not also human. It's not true of God the Spirit. God the Spirit is fully God, but not human at all. It's not true of Alexander the Great, despite your history books. It's not true of Muhammad the prophet, Joseph Smith the false prophet, Buddha the false prophet, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Tom Cruise, or Will Smith. No one else ever, ever is fully human and fully God. Now, a lot of false teachers want to tell you that man can become God. That's a lie from hell. It's a counterfeit gospel. It's a lie. Only Jesus, only Jesus. And here's the thing, he was always eternally God and chose to take on our flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God became one of us. The word we give for Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So you need to broaden your view of who and what and how Jesus is. He's fully God and fully human, that means some things. That means he controls the cosmos and he gets tired. It means he can, he can shape the heart of a person and he still cries when people let him down. Let me just give you some history here and some biblical theology about the evidence of the historical figure of Jesus. There's like a whole movement now that wants to say that you can't even prove Jesus existed. That is so ridiculous and dumb and demonic. I mean, the devil has tried forever to lie about God. So the New Testament is an historical record of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it has for centuries been the most thorough and reliable historical document of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. In addition to that, Historians, not just in the Middle Ages and late centuries, but historians in the first century wrote about Jesus, his ministry, his followers, and the explosion of the church. Non-Christian historian most notable is a man by the name of Josephus, who was not a follower of Jesus. He was a Jewish scholar, but he was alive in the first century, and he manuscripted and cataloged all kinds of history about Jesus. Biblically, not only does history prove the historicity of Jesus, Biblically, by the way, one of the other historical proofs of Jesus is his body was never found. I want you to think of the fact that so many historical figures are buried in some tomb somewhere or in some plot. His body's never been found, never. Even when the people died who were hiding a body die, they go through their stuff and they find the body they hide. Jesus was never found. That's really morbid. Okay, sorry, Jim Hoffa fans. But now biblically, this is something that'll blow your mind. I tell you, Dr. Mike's in the house, okay? We're gonna nerd out for a second, watch this. Both the Old and New Testament speak to the existence of Jesus. Obviously, the New Testament does, but the Old Testament foretold and prophesied and spoke ahead to the existence of a Messiah that would be fully divine and fully human. Watch, there are more than 300 prophecies, hundreds of years, if not centuries before the birth and life of Jesus. Here's something you gotta understand. The, New, the Old Testament ended in Malachi, and then there was a 300-year gap between Malachi and Matthew's gospel, the beginning of the New Testament. That's longer than America's been around. There's a gap between the Testaments. And God was doing stuff. The world was still moving forward, and God was doing stuff, but we don't have documentation or, or prophetic writing from those days. 
But the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, was prophesying about a Messiah, a Savior, an anointed one who would come. And they, there were over 300 prophecies about this person. And G, listen to me, Jesus Christ fulfilled them all. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Of course you go, well, yeah, the religious book, you know, it comes back around. No, this is a collection of works that were written by different authors, inspired by God. We talked about this last week over centuries of time. But let me just give you some math data, okay? My math friend over here will appreciate this. The probability of one person fulfilling 50 prophecies that are hundreds of years old, okay? I want you to think back to the 1400s. And somebody was writing prophecy about you, okay? And you come along and you fulfilled 50 prophecies, just 50, not 350, like the ones about Jesus, 50. The probability of one person fulfilling 50 multiple centuries old prophecies, you ready for this? Is one in 10 to the 157th power. One out of 10 to the 157 zeros. Let me tell you uh, an illustration. I'm gonna show you what that looks like. I want you to imagine the great nation of Texas. <laughs> All you Texans, you're welcome. <clears throat> and I want you to imagine that you cover the entire state of Texas with half dollars. You know a little half dollar? Is that Susan B. Anthony? No, who's on that? Kennedy, thank you. Kennedy half dollars, that's right. And, and you cover the state side by side with half dollars, the entire state of Texas. To get 10 to the 157th power of half dollars would be a pile of half dollars two feet thick over the entire state of Texas. That's 10 to the 157th power. Then I want you to take one half dollar and just paint it red and bury it somewhere in Texas. And then ask a blind person Give them one shot to find that quarter, that half dollar. That's the probability of one person fulfilling 50 centuries old prophecies. Jesus fulfilled almost 350 in a 30 year lifespan. What in the world does that have to do with anything? That is so miraculous, it, like it has to be the divinity and the divine hand of God to let one, you don't believe me, okay, let me show you some of the prophecies. I'm gonna do 100, 352 prophecies right now, here we go. I'll give you like 10. Micah chapter five said he would be born in Bethlehem. Nothing cool comes out of Bethlehem. Four, 500 years before Jesus, God speaks through the prophet Micah, the savior would come from Bethlehem. Nothing cool came from Bethlehem. Okay, goes on. Isaiah 7, 400 plus years before the birth of Jesus, he would be born of a virgin. That's real specific. <laughs> That's real impossible. I don't know if you know this or not, little birds and bees here. There's no way. I mean, you would think Isaiah's editors would be like, hey, bro, you said the dumbest thing I've ever read here before. I have an OB on our board, an OBGYN doc on our board. I've asked him like, have any virgins ever come in pregnant? Never once ever in the history of the human experience ever have virgins become pregnant. I guess now with IVF it can happen, but Isaiah 7, hundreds of years before Jesus. He'd be born of a virgin, come from Bethlehem. Uh, Isaiah 40 said he'd be preceded by a wild messenger, John the Baptist. 
Zechariah 9 said he'd enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Psalm 41 and 55, the psalmist says that he would be betrayed by those he loved. Zechariah 11, hundreds of years before the passion of Jesus, said that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Do you know how specific that is? That Judas would go to the leaders and be, he would sell Jesus out, not for 29, not for 32, not for a bag of nickels and some toothpicks, 30 pieces of silver prophesied in Isaiah or Zechariah 11. Isaiah 53 says he'd be wounded and beaten for our sins. Isaiah 53 said he would never speak at his own trial. You ever read the passion of Jesus? Go, why didn't he just say something? Of course I'm God. You want me to show you something? Pow, pow. You know, like never said a word. Because God said he wouldn't. And so Jesus knew he couldn't. This will blow your mind. Psalm 22, hundreds of years prior to the Roman occupation of Israel. You gotta understand, there's 300 year gap between the Testaments, okay? In that gap, Rome became a national power, a, a world power. Rome was nobody in Micah and Malachi and all the minor prophets. Rome becomes an international power and they conquer nation, 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 nation. Middle East, Israel, they conquered it. And Rome introduced crucifixion as the most brutal form of torture and killing where they nail you by your arms and feet to a post or a, a crossbeam and let suffocation kill you over the hours and then finally break your legs to kill you. That was never a way of killing people throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 22, written hundreds of years prior to the Roman occupation of Israel, said he would be pierced in his hands and his feet. They said he'd be given vinegar in Psalm 69, that he'd be buried with the rich man in Isaiah. Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Isaiah 53 said that he would resurrect from the dead. 300 plus prophecies about Jesus proving the divinity of Christ. He is God forever. There's no probable way that this many prophecies can be fulfilled in one person unless he's God unless God knew what he was saying as he gifted those prophecies to the prophets. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It's astounding. But he was human. John 14 says his body grew tired. Matthew 4 said he got hungry. I mean, if you're God, I ain't tired, I ain't hungry. I'm gonna manifest a duck and I'm gonna eat it and I'm gonna, I defy rest and sleep, I overcome. But he's God, but he's human. Mark 11 said he had emotions, he got angry. Mark 10 said he showed love, and John 11 said he, sat, he was sad. In John 11:35, 35, he wept. The God of the universe who holds the clouds and the stars in the universe, like they're showing new tel telescope photos of the universe and how expansive it is. And some people are like, see, there's other universe, there's other, and I just go, the heavens declare the glory of God, how big and how expansive our universe is that God hung all of that and yet still came down into this time and space with us to be one of us. He holds all of that and yet he weeps when a guy dies. Shortest verse in the Bible is John eleven thirty five. 35, by the way. Jesus wept. If you need an easy, memorable verse, you can tell people. I'm memorizing the Bible. <laughs> Luke 2 says he was a student. He learned. Mark 6 said he went to work. I, I just want you to think about this. Every day when you go to work, Jesus went to work too. Do you treat your boss like Jesus probably treated his boss? Do you talk at the water cooler like Jesus talks at the water cooler? Do you treat coworkers like he would have treated, I just think that's crazy. I mean, the God of heaven clocked in, did his work. 
Ask the boss, can I go pee? <laughs> you ever think about that? I mean, some of us were really used to Jesus the human. You gotta realize first, he was always eternally God. Then he became one of us. He showed obedience. He was tempted to sin. Mark 1 says that he was tempted multiple times in temptation to sin with the devil. By the way, uh, another text in Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. So I want you to think of the thing that tempts you. Maybe it's dishonesty, theft, murderous thoughts, unforgiveness, sexual immorality, greed, malice, jealousy, gossip, whatever it is, whatever tempts you. And for some of us, we ain't even tempted. We just do it. I want you to understand that in every way the human experience shows temptation, Jesus was tempted. Was he tempted to murder? According to the Bible, he was. Was he tempted to lie? Yep. Was he tempted to commit adultery or fornication or experience sexual immorality? Yep. He was tempted in every way that we are. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, but he never gave in to temptation because he's God, but he felt that in the flesh. And listen to what he goes on to say. And because he never gave in, you have a sympathetic advocate with God that'll help you overcome every temptation. See, we live with this lie now that says, I'm wired this way, I was born this way, I was raised this way, it's just, just, it's just what I feel, I feel this, and so I'm gonna do it. And Jesus will say, yeah, I felt all of that and I didn't do it. And you don't have to either because I live on the inside of you by my spirit. God is so big and he's so personal. He holds it all, Jesus holds the entire universe and he still carries your life because he mat you matter to him. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? Man, glory to God. In the gospels, especially John's gospel, he has this kind of litany of statements that he would make. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, it may not make a lot of sense to you, but you remember the story of Moses, God calling Moses, I'm gonna use you to set my people free. Remember that? Have you watched the Prince of Egypt, people? Come on. <laughs> Exodus chapters three, five, six, this whole story's there, and four, I skipped it. Anyway, God comes to Moses in a burning bush, said, you're gonna use, I'm gonna use you to set my people free. Moses starts giving all these excuses. Who am I? I'm a criminal. I, 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 I stutter. He just made it up on the fly. It was so funny. <laughs> and then he asks this question. He goes, who should I say sent me? Who am I gonna, what am I gonna tell them when they go, who sent you to us? You know, the Israelites in captivity. And God says to Moses, you tell them, I am that I am has sent you. God self-identifies as I am that I am. That's this term of eternality, like the big, he said, you tell them the God of forever sent you. You tell them the God who hung that pyramid, who put that Pharaoh on earth, the God who built the heavens and the earth and everything in it. You tell them the eternal God of eternity is the one who's backing you today. That's what he said. And, and everyone in the Bible knew I am is a term for God. Jesus comes on the scene in John's gospel and he says, I am the bread of life. And I'm gonna tell you something, religious people hated this. They're like, hey, bro, just say something else. Like, did you know I can bring you bread? You know, but him using this title was very, very strategic. He's identifying himself as the eternal one who also satisfies your needs. He says, I am the light of the world. I'm the one, I am the eternal one who brightens the darkness in your life. I'm the gate of the, I'm the only way to get into the sheepfold, the family of God. I'm the eternal one that does that. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. You don't get resurrection without me. And this is people that are like, Dad, we don't believe in resurrection. This is crazy. No, no, no. I am resurrection. I'm life. I'm going to overcome death. I'm going to overcome sin. And you can have eternal life because I'm the eternal one. He says, I am the way to God. We're going to unpack this in just a second. I'm the truth about God. I'm the only one giving you eternal life. I'm the eternal one that gives you the way, the truth, and the life to eternity. By the way, he says, uh, I am the true vine. 
These are the things he would say that made the people want to kill him. They wanted to kill him for blasphemy. They wanted to kill him for claiming to be God. Frankly, they asked him, are you God? He goes, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Like, okay, it's one thing for somebody to say, I'm God, and then die and prove that you're not. In fact, thousands and thousands of religious leaders have claimed to be divine, and they're still buried in tombs all around the world. Jesus defeated death when he resurrected from the dead. This is what's unique about Jesus. Whenever somebody tells you, aren't all religions basically the same? No, no, Jesus is totally different. He's fully God and fully human. He alone is the eternal one. He alone is the way to God. He's the only one that resurrected from the dead. They may have shared moral beliefs. They may all say don't steal and don't lie and don't beat on your parents. They may all share some morality, but no tradition, no faith, no religion claims what Jesus claimed. And he proved it when he resurrected from the dead. Colossians writes, in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, fully divine, fully human. Isn't our God awesome? You need to expand your view of Jesus. You need to just soak it in, take a deep breath and be like, wow, how great is our God? He, he, can, he can do everything. He can see everything. He's internal and he's one of us. Matthew 10, Jesus said, if we receive Jesus, you receive me. John 10, he said, I and the Father are one. Luke 22, Jesus said, I'll be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He has all the power. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. In Luke 22, they asked him, are you the son of God? He goes, yes, I am. I'm God the son. John 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. The word was God. The word, verse 14, became flesh. But the word God became flesh. He didn't skirt out on his divinity in order to take on humanity. Hey, you want me to really blow your mind for a second? I only heard one person, so I'm gonna hold it. No, it doesn't feel genuine now. Here's what's really powerful about Jesus. He was forever eternally God and became flesh, right? He lived in the flesh. He overcame the flesh by the power of God in him, that he is God. He died in the flesh, was buried in the flesh, resurrected with the flesh. Now wait. He ascended to the right hand of the power of God with the flesh. And so now the human flesh exists for the first time in heaven waiting for us to join him. When God, when you pray to God through the son, Jesus, and you're going, oh, I'm really tempted in my flesh. He goes, I know what that felt like. And he's like, I know what that feels like. When you're hurting and you're wounded or you're despondent or you got cancer or your family's falling apart and you cry out to God because your flesh is hurting, Jesus says, I know what that feels like and I still got it because he brought flesh into heaven with him and he's waiting for us. We're gonna get to a text in a moment where he's there preparing a place for us to come with our glorified bodies. Come on, Hulk. And we're gonna be in heaven forever with the flesh. We serve an amazing God. We serve an amazing God. And all roads do not lead to God. Only Jesus, God who became one of us and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Man, I'm fired up. Woo, I already preached this twice, and this is my favorite one so far. He's the Lord of everything, and yet he can feel anything. He knows what you feel. He knows your grief, your shame, your scandal, your sexual brokenness. He knows the pain of divorce and being a single parent. He knows the pain of being abandoned by your family. 
and he sympathizes with you in every single way. He knew fatigue and hunger and feelings of loneliness and isolation and temptation, and yet he can still control all of the cosmos. He's only letting us see what we can see so far. The full weight of heaven is on Jesus at all times. So why'd he come? Seems like a big dude to come to this earth. Why'd he come? I'm gonna run out of time. So be kind to the Kid Point team. Go bless them, give them a $10 bill. Say thank you for watching my kids a little longer. The anointing was thick in there today. I'm gonna do my best. Why'd he come? Are y'all getting anything out of this so far? I'm just telling you, I, the bigness and the massiveness, listen, you can go to Jesus with anything. Are you kidding me? You're never a waste of his time. You're never a bother to him. There's nothing to insist. Oh, God, I stubbed my toe. Oh, Jesus, help me. He's like, I know what that feels like. My brother James stepped on my toe all the time. I got you, bro. I got you. Can you imagine Jesus just shifting the universes and galaxies and quieting all the angels from singing to him because you've started Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. He's so good. He's so good. He's so, golly, it's so deafening to think that we believe. Anybody would believe. All roads lead to God. That's so insulting to the unique and massive story of Jesus Christ. What an insult. What a human-centric, me-centric way to think of God. Why'd he come? He came, God came to us for one reason, it's rescue, it's mission. It's because he looked at the landscape of the human experience and he realized we are screwed, we are broken, we are flawed, and we need transformation. I want you to understand the big story of salvation history. God created everything from nothing. He created the, the heavens and the earth. In the Bible, your Bible says in, in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created. Now, the English version of that's just, oh, it's not enough. The Hebrew Bible says, in the beginning, in Hebrew, Elohim created. And that word is plural and majestic in Godhead. The word Elohim, it's like the word parents. It immediately means plural, right? It's it's in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And we have it, the picture of creation, this plural, majestic Godhead. And then the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the highlight of all creation was not animals and trees and mountains and suns and moons and universes. The highlight of God's creation, the only thing that God breathed his life into was humans. God said, let us, verse 26 of Genesis 1, he goes, let us. That's plural. God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. And God breathed his breath into humans. And according to Genesis 1, we were created by God in the image of God in the likeness of God. Don't worry, some of you are like, yeah, I feel like that now. You're not. Hang on, I'm going to tell you why. That's his original design. That is, we have the breath of God. He says we're image bearers. We are to reflect the image of God in his likeness, we are love, we are relational, we're triune. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We are body, soul, and spirit. God created all things from nothing, and we were his highlight. 
And the Bible says that we were perfect creation. We were eternal. We were not supposed to die. Can you believe it? We're going to live forever. And we didn't have a sin nature, but we had this gift from God called free will. Can I tell you, it's loving that God would give us the ability to choose or reject him. It's actually controlling and manipulative and unloving that God would create us as robots that have no design or desire on our own. We have free will. Parents, this is good for you, right? Like you know how, what it means when you look at your kids and you go, here's what we expect. Now you're gonna have to make the choice, right? So God gives expectation in Genesis one and two and these young brand new humans, perfect image of God, butt naked, glorious, it was awesome. I don't know why I brought that part up, but it's true. <laughs> in our freedom, we gave into temptation to be just like God. If you go read the text, they weren't tempted with fruit. They were tempted, when you eat this, you'll be just like God. That's actually the temptation of every time you sin. I want to do this, but God's word says, but I'm going to do it anyway. I want to be in control of my life. I want to be in charge of my decisions. I know God says not to cheat on my wife, but I really feel it's love, and I just want to be like God and decide. Every time you give in to sin, it's a little part of you wanting to be like God. And so we, in our free will, freely walked into the fullness of temptation, and we willfully sinned against God. And that sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, how many of you want to meet him in heaven one day and just go, why did you do this? You know, just grab him by the shoulders Gently shake him, not her, she's precious. That sin of willful disobedience became the reality of all of humans that were created in the image of God with the breath of God and the, in the image and likeness of God and it brought tremendous consequence. Most significantly now we have physical death. They weren't gonna die, but now they have death. And we have a perpetual nature that's changed from free will and divine to free will and sin nature. All humans from there forward are born with sin. Every one of our children are born with sin. I know you think they're little angels when they're born. No, they're not. They're little sinners. And you need to say it when they're born. Welcome, little sinner. Little sinner. I'm just kidding. That's a really weird day in the hospital, you know what I'm saying? But if you don't believe they're little sinners, wait till they're two. Parents, can I get an Amen. But think about it, we're all sinners now. We're born into sin and we have disease, natural disasters, birth defects, sin nature, all kinds of cats prone to wander, born with sinful, disobedient heart towards God. It's part of sin, the fall of God's creation. The Bible says we're actually enemies of God. I want you to get this. We're enemies of God because our sin nature is at enmity with God because we're, God is holy and he can't abide with sin and sinful humans. The theological term for that is we're totally depraved. That is, in our fallen state, we can never do right enough for God to save ourselves. We're not good enough. We'll never be good enough. The Bible says nobody's righteous apart from Jesus. This is the way the Bible says in Romans 3, 23, everybody's sinned. Everybody. Can I say everybody? All people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the condition of humans now because of Adam and Eve. And so the story continues. God gave us the law which is his set of standards, his rules, his expectations. It starts with 10 commandments, it expands to 600 plus. And even though the law is thorough, it's imperfect. Why? Because it can never change a heart. Back to God. Listen, people, you need to write this down. It's good for your kids. 
People can always follow the rules and still not follow God. And that's exactly what happened. Read the Old Testament. It's the story of God's people following rules and not him. So God would give new sets of expectations and new leadership. God gives people judges and kings and priests and prophets. All of this is wanting to point people back to God's heart. But the law and the rules and the people in place would never change God's heart. The penalty for sin was death. There becomes this penal this penal atonement system where, where in order to atone for or pay for sin, the, pen, the penalty, the, the punishment would be some kind of animal sacrifice. The shedding of blood would be a requirement to pay for the sins committed. Anytime you messed up or made a mistake, annually you would come to this day of atonement or quarterly or every six months or however often you felt guilty and you would slaughter an animal and you would say to God, Lord, I'm paying the price for my sin with the shedding of this innocent blood. But all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, God had this consistent statement. He said, I'd rather have your heart than your animals. I'd rather have you than your sacrifice. It's better to obey me than to keep sacrificing because you keep blowing it. And the ultimate way, I want you to hear this, the ultimate way to have God's heart is for God himself, the son, to come give us his heart. That would be Jesus. This is where the story turns. God in his providence looks at the whole world and he says, well, it'll never get right. They'll never repair this. The sin is too great. Death is too strong of a consequence. Fear, anxiety, sinfulness, and brokenness is their condition forever. So God in his providence said he would become the sacrifice. No more bulls and goats and birds. Jesus himself would be the first and final human sacrifice for the entire human race because he's fully God. God put himself on an altar and said, I'll die to satisfy the expectation that I have to pay for their sin. God said, I'll do it one time for everybody on the whole planet because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God said, the only way to pay for all of them is if I pay my own price and I satisfy my own bill. So the very next verse in 24 says, everybody is also justified by his grace. That's a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus. Listen, he said, everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here's a solution to that. And now all can be justified, made right with God by his grace. It's not by what we do. It's not by us behaving right and believing right and pulling our bootstraps and having perfect church attendance. It's by the grace of God. And look at what it says. That is a gift. You know what's interesting about a gift? You can accept a gift. You can leave a gift. You still have free will. This is why we are compelling people all the time, go all in with Jesus, give your life to Jesus, submit to Jesus. But all, everyone, if all have sinned, all can be justified by his grace in the cross of Jesus, through the redemption that's in Jesus, and it's a gift. It's not a requirement. God ain't forcing anybody to take this. He's freely offering it. But here's the thing. It's the only gift he's ever gonna offer for salvation. It's the only one. There's no plan B. There's no second rate. There's no second path. There's no other religion that has another option. The only option is Jesus. The primary reason Jesus came into the world is because God came down, lived among us, gave his life for us so we can be forgiven forever in relationship with God. And his coming to us transforms our heart. I was reading today in Hebrews, or this weekend in Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus. Um, every priest in every religion with priests, like they stand as an inter intermediary between God and man. But he said, uh, but by this one single offering of Jesus, he has perfected for all time those people who are being sanctified, those that are saved. 
And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. The new covenant, the Christian story, the covenant with Christ declares the Lord, I'll put my laws on their hearts. Not on tablets or on walls. God said, I'll put my laws on their hearts. Some people get so worked up about taking 10 commandments off buildings. And I feel like God goes, I want all that on your heart anyway. And I'll write my words on their minds. I'll remember their sins no more and their lawless deeds no more. Jesus says in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me. In my fa- this is Jesus talking about building a palace, right? He said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be all- How many of y'all wanna live where God's at forever? Now watch this. And you know the way to where I'm going. You know they're thinking like, is there a train? Is there a plane, like a trolley? What do you mean? Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas interrupts. How do you wanna be that guy? Uh, You ever have a kid in your class just raise a hand while you're talking? I had somebody do that once in a sermon. I was in the middle of preaching and this person raised their hand. I was like, what eat what? And it threw me up. Please don't ever do that. Unless it's a hanky hand, you know what I'm saying? Anyway. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, doubting Thomas. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And look what he said. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus came because of the mission of God to restore you and me to relationship with God. There's no other plan. There's no second string quarterback. There's no plan B. There is no other way. If there was, listen, if there's another way to God, if all roads lead to God, if other religions can be true, then Jesus is a liar. I don't know what kind of a betting person you are, but I'm gonna bet on him. Remember the 350 prophecies? Remember the resurrection from the dead? I'm gonna bet on Jesus as God and what he says is true. Well, my cousin believes, and they said, and my friend said, look, Jesus is more important than your cousin. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him because you know Jesus. Listen, the only way to God is Jesus. Why did he come? To restore relationship between a holy God and sinful humanity, and now this gap is bridged by the person Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Can I hear an amen, everybody? That's some great news. How great is our God? Realizing the tragedy of our world, that we were hopeless and will never earn it ourselves, he came to earn it for us. Every religion teaches you how to behave your way to God. Christianity shows us how God behaved his way to us and made the way for us to be back in the family. He'd taken you from sin to son. He took you from death the daughter, man, we have victory over death and sin and we can die with hope that we will be with him forever in a house that he's preparing. Remember when I said earlier, he brought flesh into heaven. He's waiting on us. He's preparing a house for us. Can y'all believe one day we gonna have a big old house? I heard a great story this week. I heard a great story this week. Um, yeah, I gotta finish my story. It's, it, does, it was a bad joke. All right, anyway, <laughs> finally, uh, I gotta close. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Because I'm going to talk, I mean, I could get up here, sweat it out, and keep preaching about Jesus. But now you got to decide if you're going to follow this king or not. Our mission is to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. 
Notice the mission of our church is not to lead people to be believers in Jesus. I wanna make a very clear distinction here about something. My job is not to convince you to believe. God will teach you what to believe by his word, by his spirit. My job is to invite you to follow this Jesus. And as you follow him, your beliefs will change because you'll read his word, you'll spend time with him, you'll grow in this church. You don't have all your beliefs figured out yet. I have not invited you to come believe. I've invited you to follow Jesus. Everyone Jesus called, he said, come follow me. None of the disciples believed in him yet. Some of them didn't believe in him the whole time, but they still followed him. And he called them family. I'm inviting you to follow Jesus. That's our mission as a church. So I asked you the question at the beginning of this message. Are you following Jesus in every part of your life? You see the Lord of your private life and your, your public life, your parenting, your work life, your finance, your sex life, your dating and your singleness. You see the Lord of, is, are you following Jesus in every part of your life? The mission of God is to invite you as sons and daughters, again, to follow King Jesus, to say with your life, all hail King Jesus. I believe there's a major difference in knowing about Jesus, in being a fan of Jesus, in believing in Jesus, and following Jesus. Did you know the devil believes in Jesus? In the Bible, many people believed in Jesus and walked with him and traveled with him, thought he was a great healer and a God. But in John 6, we have this story of him turning around to the crowd and saying, if you don't deny everything and make me first in every area of your life, you're not my disciple, you're not my follower. And it says many of his believing disciples left him. Following means submission to the lordship and leadership of Jesus. And I believe this is gonna be a statement that a lot of people don't, maybe you've never heard before, and some Christians theologically disagree. Again, I'll take my bets on Jesus and his word over you. I believe it's God's desire that every human on the planet would submit their lives to the lordship of Jesus and follow him for the rest of their lives. I believe it's God's will for every human. You remember the big story of salvation history. God looked over the entire landscape of the human experience and said, they're all messed up. I'll go to them. Remember, uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but now all can be justified through Jesus. Peter says it like this in 2 Peter 3. He's talking about the return of Jesus. He said, God's not slow to return, as some people think he's slow, but he's being patient towards you, church. What? Not wanting any to perish, but that all people, all should reach repentance. Paul says in Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. Here's the heart of God. He wants us to pray for everybody. Can you believe this? He says, I want you praying for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so we may lead peaceful, quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. I believe it's God's will and desire that every human on the planet submit to the lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ and come to the knowledge of the truth and grow. Notice he said, follow Jesus, get saved, give your life to Christ, and then grow in your understanding of who Jesus is. So church, it has to start with us if it's gonna continue into the world. God's heart is for all people. He says there's one mediator between God and men, and it's Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. God's heart's for everyone. We're to pray for everyone. We're to preach to everyone. We're to share the gospel with everyone. Only Jesus can get anyone to God. Only Jesus. It's the only way to know God. It's the only way to be saved. The only way to come to a knowledge of the real truth is through Jesus Christ. One mediator between God and the human, Jesus. Are y'all hearing me today, everybody? 
So how are you doing in your relationship with Jesus, the, the eternal God of the universe who feels everything you feel and knows everything you know and can help you with your connection to a holy God? Father, would you help us to be convinced of your word today and the truth of who Jesus is? Lord, we are so honored and humbled that God, you have sent your son into the world to die in our place, to give his life as a ransom for all people so that we can be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Lord, what a privilege it is to serve you, and to live for you and to love you and to, to be devoted to you in every area of our lives. God, would you help us to have a revelation of who Jesus is, how big and eternal and magnificent you are in Jesus' name. We hear the word of God today. We hear the sermons, the sermon preached. We hear the scriptures referenced. God, we believe you're eternal. We believe, Jesus, that you are the eternal God of the universe and the eternal Son of God, the Son of Man with us. And Lord, you gave your life for us to pay the penalty of our sin that we can have eternal life with Jesus. So we submit to your lead, your lead and your Lordship in Jesus' name. Could you just pray with me today, everybody around the room? Come on, say, God, I've heard the word today. I believe what I heard. I believe in Jesus. Come on, say it for real. I believe in Jesus, that he died for my sin so that I can live for you for the rest of my life. I'm all in, in Jesus' name. I'm all yours. I belong to you. I will serve you as a son or daughter for the rest of my life, in Jesus' name. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me that I may have eternal life. I ask for your forgiveness. I receive your salvation. I'm all in. Say it again, I'm all in, in Jesus' name. Come on, everybody, amen.